A few announcements before we get started with today's conversation. First, Lexi Walker and Lola Van Linden are the newest Patreon supporters. Thank you. To Erica Hamilton and Joachim Andron, your recent one-time donations to the show gave me some peace of mind that allowed me to be present for someone I care about during a difficult time of transition. Thank you. As you may have heard in recent episodes, in cooperation with John Wages of Permaculture Design Magazine, we partnered together to give a one-year subscription of his periodical to a Patreon supporter, as well as a copy of Toby Hemingway's incredible work, Gaia's Garden, to a podcast listener. The winner of that one-year subscription was David Littlefield. The winner of Gaia's Garden was Molly Gower. Thank you both for your interest in the show and participation in these giveaways. Also, the winners of their own art prints from the Spring Fundraiser, also known as The Car Drive, are Stephen Ward, Aziz Nahas, and John Kennedy. You and everyone else who contributed to this campaign helped me to raise the funds needed for a down payment to finally replace my aging minivan with a 2010 Honda Civic Hybrid. Thank you. You can help to continue to grow and spread the message of permaculture on an ongoing basis at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast or by making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by dropping something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you're not in the place to sign up at Patreon or donate at this time, something you can do right now is to leave a review on iTunes. It will really help. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest is Victoria Redhead Miller, author of Pure Poultry and her latest, From No Need to Sourdough, which pull on her experiences as an off-the-grid homesteader in the Pacific Northwest and are available from New Society Publishers. Our conversation today, however, comes from her second book, Craft Distilling, as we talk about what is involved with legally crafting our own booze at home. With that in mind, we talk about the lunacy of laws when everything we want to do at home or on our homestead is illegal, and what we can do to bring about change, as well as a bit of the history of the role of distilling, liquor, and taxation in the founding days of the United States. Enjoy this conversation with Victoria, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Victoria, can you tell us a bit about yourself, and then we'll talk about distilling. Yeah, I grew up in Seattle, and lived there for the first 45 years of my life and got married in 2000 and six years later in 2006 my husband and I moved out to where we currently live which is a 40-acre off-grid farm in the foothills of the Olympic Mountains in northwest Washington state uh, about two and a half hours from Seattle and the way we came to that property was David's grandparents actually bought the property back in the 1930s And so it's been in his family for a long time. And, you know, David and his sisters, when they were young, used to spend part of their summer vacations visiting the grandparents out there. And so he'd had a dream for many years and a plan to eventually live there after he retired. So so we've been up there for 12 years now. And as you can imagine, after having lived most of my life in Seattle, it was a bit of a transition going from being in the big city where... I have to admit, I took electricity completely for granted, you know, to being off the grid. But honestly, I I was real surprised at how easy the transition turned out to be. And part of that, I think, is just because I, I think I just really quickly connected with the lifestyle there. And I really didn't miss things like TV and Internet as much as I thought I would. 
I had actually, while we were still in Seattle, I had been making beer and wine and champagne for a number of years. And and then after we moved to the farm, I was still doing that occasionally, although not quite as frequently because we were just busy fixing up the house and getting gardens going and starting to raise animals and all those sorts of things. But eventually I did get to, it was about five years ago, I did get to a place where I started getting interested in distilled liquor. And I think that a lot of people from all the conversations I've had over the years with other home or hobby distillers, an awful lot of them come to distilling the same way I did, which was we've been making beer and or wine for quite some time. And distilled liquor is, it's like the next challenge. It's the next thing to learn. And that's pretty much how it happened for me as well. And also about that time, this was late 2012, and I was waiting to hear from a publisher about whether they were accepting my first book for publication. And at about the same time, I applied for a craft distilling license in Washington State. And that just, that kind of opened up a whole can of worms that I never anticipated because I was aware that of what the law is, which is in the U.S., in order to distill liquor legally, you have to have both a state license and a federal permit. And that includes if you're making liquor for your own personal consumption, which is a real common misconception about that. And so I wanted to do this legally. That was part of my motivation. And the other part was I was already, this seems funny in retrospect, even though my first book hadn't been published yet, I was already contemplating the possibility of writing a book about distilling. And one of the things that I wanted to write about was the licensing process, because at the time, it was very difficult to find very much information about the licensing process. It was very confusing and had a hard time finding any good resources to help me. And so I just happened to mention it to the managing editor of my publisher and that I had applied for this license. And she said, oh, great. We might want to have you write a book about that sometime. And I, of course, was thinking, yeah, right. Because um, <laughs> I didn't know anything about distilling at the time. I didn't have a still. I really didn't know much about it. But but that's kind of where I, that's how I, I kind of came to it originally. And you know, we can talk a little bit more if you want about the, you know, the whole licensing process or my attempting to get licensed and all that, because it's actually pretty instructive as far as just how frankly ridiculous the laws are at this point about this kind of thing. That's kind of how I got to to where we live right now and how I got into distilling. I am interested in that licensing process because I didn't realize that it was illegal even for personal consumption because I was living in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania for a long time, and I heard plenty of stories of, you know, mountain stills and moonshiners and things like that. But I've also known people over the years who tried their hands with different small stills that are available or the making like of Applejack and things like that, where you're freezing off the water as a way to concentrate. I don't know if that's still distilling or just a concentration. It's a form of distilling because really distilling, that's in essence, that's what it's doing. It's concentrating the alcohol content in there by removing water and some other components. Yeah. And then this licensing process, is there any rhyme or reason for why it's required? And what was it like to go through getting that state and federal permit? <laughs> well, the bottom line of it was that when I applied for the license, what I found out was that Okay, first of all, I was the, the 
in, in Washington State, it's the State Liquor Control Board that controls these things. And I found out later that they're the ones that actually, they don't actually make the laws. The state legislature does that, but they have an awful lot of power as far as that goes. And so, but what they told me was, they said, you are the first person in Washington State to apply for this license who was not trying to do it as a business, and we don't know what to do with you. And the reason was because, and I've been over every single line of relevant Washington State legislation on this subject a couple of times in the course of research. And I can tell you that there is absolutely, and this is also true on the federal level, there is absolutely no provision for people like me. And by people like me, I mean people who want to do this legally, but not commercially. There's absolutely no provision for it. And I said, what's wrong with this picture? Because <laughs> here I am trying to do the right thing. I'm aware of the law and I want to do this legally, and they're making it impossible for me to do that. But as I said, they told me that they had never run into this situation before, and so they didn't know what to do. Eventually, they came back to me and said, we cannot grant you this permit unless you're willing to do it as a business and sell the liquor. And at that point, I would have to, they said, you not only have to sell it, you have to submit sales reports and all the taxes you collect every single month. And I said, I don't even have a still yet. When I do have a still, it's going to be this little thing that I might run once a month. I didn't even know enough about distilling at the time to know how much liquor I would produce in one batch from any given still. So I was kind of floored by all this. And and my, my main contact at the Liquor Control Board eventually told me, she said, you know what, we know there are people like you out there. And by that, she meant people who were just hobbyists, who had small stills, and were just making a little bit of liquor for their own consumption or possibly just to share amongst friends and family. But she said, realistically, we're not going to come after you unless somebody complains. Well, we live at the end of a country road two miles up the hill from our nearest neighbor, and our house is half a mile in from our gate, and there's no through traffic anywhere near us. Who in the world is going to know, much less complain about it? In fact, my husband, David, who he's the type of guy who will talk to perfect strangers in grocery store lines. He, <laughs> as soon as I told him I had sent in this application packet, he's going around town telling everybody, oh, my wife's going to make vodka. Isn't that cool? <laughs> And so I said, um, honey, it's, this is no longer a covert operation. <laughs> and so I've had many, many people ask me, why was I bothering with trying to get this license or a federal permit, given how isolated we are and all of that? And I mean, what can I say except that I just, I don't like doing things illegally if I have some sort of a choice about it. However, in this case, the ironic thing is that the Liquor Control Board and the state legislature in our state have made it completely impossible for me to get this permit because I said, this isn't fair. Here I am trying to do the right thing, and you're not allowing me to do that. And so at a certain point, I had to make a decision whether I was going to continue with that licensing process or just say to heck with it, and I'll just build my little still and do this on the sly up here. But for me, I talked about it with David and I just, I came to a decision at a certain point that, and I talk about this in my presentations, for me, there's a bigger picture than just, it's more, more than just about making booze. To me, this is about what is clearly an outdated, unfair law 
that is, it's really onerous for people like me. And I don't want to do this commercially, but I do want to do it legally. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Because as you mentioned earlier, you know, you know, people who were kind of doing this on the sly. And this is exactly where everybody was at before the late 70s, who was trying to make beer and wine at home. It was 1978 when Jimmy Carter signed a law that made it legal for us to make beer and wine with basically, I mean, practically unlimited quantities of it without any kind of permit or any sort of oversight or supervision. And once that happened, when we were able to then come out in the open and make beer and wine without doing it, you know, on the fly in our basements and garages, it was a huge economic boom because... If you look on Amazon or any of the other big online booksellers, look up home brewing books and see how many of them were published around 1979 or 1980. A whole bunch of them. And it's not because people just learned how to make beer and instantly published books. It's because they've been doing it for a lot of years. But finally, we were able to come out in the open and share that information. And that's what that was all about. It's about sharing information. And then people started forming, you know, beer brewing clubs and they organized festivals and, and contests. And then people started pooling their resources and opened the first brew pubs and microbreweries. And, of course, Washington State is one of the places where all that began with microbreweries. And this is 40 years on now. This year, it's 40 years since that law changed. And that industry is still growing. And so when the state liquor control board said to me, because I said when I was researching the book, I said, how come the law treats distilled liquor differently from beer and wine? And my contact said, well, there's two issues. One is safety and one is tax revenue. And I understand what she means about the safety issues because, you know, if you make beer or wine, generally, if something goes wrong, the worst thing that can happen is you end up with bad tasting beer or wine. Something goes wrong when you're distilling. First of all, there's fire and explosion hazards that aren't true of the beer and wine making process just because you're working with higher concentrations of alcohol, but there's also the possibility that if you don't know what you're doing when you're actually in the distilling process, if you don't know what you're doing with separating out the poisonous and bad-tasting things from the good things that you want to keep, then you could definitely injure yourself or somebody else. And so I get that. I get that part of it. The tax revenue part of it, she says, well, we think if people start making their own liquor, they're going to stop buying it and we'll lose tax revenue. And I said, well, that just goes to show you know nothing about the distilling process because it just takes a lot longer. There's a whole lot of more processes involved in making a bottle of distilled liquor than there is in making a case of, of homemade beer. It, the whole process takes longer. It's more difficult. You need special equipment. And not everybody is going to do that. As a hobbyist, when I started brewing my own beer and making my own wine, I wound up drinking more beer and more wine commercially so that I could try different things that I'd never had before to see whether or not it was a style that I wanted to try or if there was something there that I wanted to integrate? Yeah, it seems like a strange argument. Yeah, that's what it seemed like to me, too. And toward the end of my book, I had come up with a proposal both on the state level and the federal level to change the law. And I'm perfectly prepared to go and testify in front of Congress if that's what it takes, because I'm quite convinced I've got the numbers on my side. And I actually didn't know at the time that my book went to press, which was in May of 2015, about six weeks later, 
a bill got introduced to the Senate. I didn't know about it until after my book was published. Otherwise, I would have definitely written about it in my book. But a bill was introduced to the Senate, Senate Bill 1562. That's the Craft Beverage Modernization Act and a few other words about taxes in there that would make it actually legal on a federal level to distill liquor at home without a federal permit. That bill then immediately got introduced to the Senate in June of 2015 and immediately got read into the Finance Committee, and there it has sat ever since. Last I looked, there were 51 U.S. senators who were co-sponsors of that bill, including both of the senators from Washington State. And I talk about this every time I do a presentation. Whatever state I'm in, I look up and see if that state senators are co-sponsors of the bill and ask people to call them and say, let's get this bill out of committee and onto the floor for a vote, because I think it's really important. And as I said, I think the bigger picture here, it's not just that we want to make booze at home. I feel like I've been given some fairly bogus arguments for why the law is the way it is. But, you know, I think the fact is that from all the research that I've done, the government has, for many years, has been really inconsistent and fairly, frankly, hypocritical in the way that they approach this, and with the result that it's just been a completely unfair burden on people like me who want to do things legally, we want to do it openly, and things like these safety issues would not be such an issue if we were able to do it openly, because people would be, it wouldn't be afraid to share information, you know, with each other and help each other out for fear of getting caught, and so that's kind of where I'm at with all this. I've been in contact with, there's a guy in Texas who hired some lobbyists to get that Senate Bill 1562 into the Senate, and I've been in contact with him and let him know of my support. And so far as I know, nothing much has happened with that bill for quite a long time. And this has been almost three years now. So that's kind of what's happening on that end. But yeah, as I said before, that it's a really common misconception and partly because there are other books out there that are aimed at hobby distillers that say, they say right out that it's perfectly fine as long as it's for your own consumption, but that actually isn't accurate. So I just want to make that clear. As far as I know, New Zealand is the only country in the world that currently allows home distilling without any kind of license or permit. And that changed in 1995 down there. And that was a pretty interesting story, too, about how that changed. And I think it's a really good example of how simple this would be to fix if somebody in the, in the government or somebody who's in a position to do it just comes up with the will to do it. So with this weird duality of needing a state license, which in Washington they were not able to give you because you were not doing commercial production, but instead giving kind of a tacit approval to doing something illegally as long as you didn't draw attention to yourself, which doesn't seem proper for a state organization to give you <laughs> that kind of direction, then we've got this issue that the federal law for craft or home distilling is still kind of languishing in committee. Where does that leave you in this legal process and getting the licenses that you need to create liquor at home in a non-commercial way? Right. And that's a really good question. And so what happened was at a certain point, I decided I was just going to go ahead with the licensing process, even knowing that if I managed to get the license, then that was going to be required to submit sales reports and taxes and so forth. And about two months after I had submitted my, my application packet, and in, in the meantime, there were phone interviews and with the state inspectors. And then 
a couple of weeks later, I got a call from the regional federal inspector who's based in Seattle. And about two months after I first started this whole process, I got an email from the liquor control board, the state control liquor control board saying, we're ready to give you your state license. However, we need to see your copy of your federal permit first. (laughs) And I said, I don't have that yet. And this is five and a half years later, and I still don't have that. And the reason why I don't have that is because, as I said, there is no provision for that in the federal law. And after several rounds of going back and forth with the feds, what used to be the ATF, and it's now got a different acronym, the TTB, I went through three rounds in 2013 in the first six months or so after I applied for this permit, I went through three rounds of sending paperwork back and forth with the feds. And it was just really kind of ridiculous. They said they want two copies of this and three copies of that. And they had to be stacked in a certain order. And I did all of this. And three times in a row, I did this. And three times in a row, I got a letter back saying, we can't finish processing your application because it's incomplete. (laughs) And at that point, I was heavily into the editorial process on my first book. And I just put it on the shelf for the time being. And that turned out to be a good decision anyway, because at that same time was when I found out that it wasn't going to happen for me under the current law. There simply was no provision for it. They couldn't, even if they wanted to give me the permit, the current law wouldn't allow that. And so to this day, I do not have a state license or a federal permit. So, (laughs) so that's, what happened with that, you know, I tried to follow all the, you know, I, I jumped through all of the hoops on the state level and the federal level up to the point where I discovered that I couldn't go any further with the feds. But, you know, the federal inspector had said, well, you need to have a separate facility that's at least, you know, so far from your home and that kind of thing. And they had regulations about what, the, you know, what the facility should be. And I complied with all of that stuff. The state had me do things like, They wanted me to post by my front door. (laughs) They wanted me to post a notice on bright yellow paper saying that I had applied for this license. And this was the point of this was to let people in your neighborhood know that you'd applied for the license and give them time to comment in case they thought that having a distillery in the neighborhood would, you know, change the character adversely of the neighborhood. (laughs) And this was just kind of, it kind of cracked us up because, like I said, our our house is half a mile in from our gate, which is usually locked. No one's going to see a notice by our front door unless we unlock the gate and invite them in. <laughs> so so we, we kind of went with the spirit of the law and we posted it on our gate post for the required amount of time. So we did all of these things. And like I said, eventually the liquor control board said, we'll give you your license, but we want to see your federal permit first. And but that just turned out to be impossible. So here I am. But when... Yeah, when the liquor control board said to me, realistically, we won't come after you unless someone complains, you know, I said, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, what you're saying is that we're basically okay with you doing this illegally, and they know I'm doing it illegally because I'm talking to them on the phone about it. (laughs) So we're okay with you doing this illegally, but we're not going to make it possible for you to do it legally. And I said, that just isn't right. And so that's really kind of, that was sort of the tipping point for me in deciding that not only was I going to, you know, continue to try to go through this licensing process, but that's also where I first decided to try to do what I could to actually change the law. It's been kind of funny that sometimes we've had plenty of things to just kind of laugh about and, you know, sort of 
self-deprecating kind of way. Um, but of course, a lot of it's been very frustrating, but but it's also been very interesting. And I, at this point, I honestly don't have any regrets about my decision to go ahead with this licensing process. And also just not only have I been in contact with Washington state legislators and the U.S. congressman from our state about this, I'm going around the country talking quite openly about this because I think it's that and it's largely because it's not because I think everybody should make their own booze, but it's because I, I think that that people should be aware of what the law actually says. And every time I go to a different state, I tell them, please contact your senators and ask them to, if they're not already co-sponsors of this bill, ask them to, to sponsor it and let's try to get something happening with this because it just, it feels to me like it's time, you know, for that change to be made. Because when I started looking at the Washington state legislation on this subject, the first thing that really jumped out at me was almost every single line of that legislation dates back to 1933, which was, of course, the year that prohibition was repealed. And that's it right there, how out of date all of this is. And, you know, in my opinion, that all should have been, at the very least, should have been revisited around in the late 70s when the law changed regarding beer and wine. And I don't know why. I don't know why it wasn't, but clearly it wasn't. So where does that leave you in all this process with those two, with that license, that permit not being available? Well, really what it means is whenever I distill any liquor, technically I'm doing that illegally. And actually, you know, at this point, I honestly haven't even run my still in nearly two years. I've just been, I've been busy traveling to speaking events and, you know, working on another book and craft distilling. The book came out in January of 2016, and I think I've only even run the still once since then. Um, I've just been too busy to do it, and which kind of underscores my point to the Liquor Control Board that people aren't going to be spending an awful lot of time taking booze because no, who has time? You know, it just it takes time. And so I've just kind of shifted gears into this mode of rather than just, you know, being at home quietly making illegal booze, um, <laughs> I'm going around talking about this openly because I just, like I said, I think there's this bigger picture here about unfair laws that really need to be changed, you know, that are just putting a completely unfair burden on people trying to do the right thing. That's kind of where I'm at with that. And I quite often get asked when I'm doing presentations why I'm going around talking so openly about this and why am I not afraid of getting caught? Because, I mean, on the federal level, if you do get caught, Boy, the penalties and things, those are, by the way, really outdated, too. It's just it's ridiculous how harsh some of these things are. And it doesn't matter how big or small your still is or how much liquor you're producing. You're subject to all of those penalties, and they're pretty awful. But I just said, well, the main reason why I'm not worried about it is because these people know who I am. I've applied for these permits. I'm in the system. If somebody wanted to, and I have been for five years, almost six years now, and, you know, nobody's come after me so far. And as a matter of fact, the Liquor Control Board in Washington State has been very encouraging to me that my main contact over there, she thinks it's great that I am trying to change the laws. She, she really does. And, um, and so that was obviously encouraging. But that's, yeah, that's where I'm at with it. I'm perfectly well aware of what I'm doing when I distill liquor. And like I said, at this point, my main thing, I guess, is really kind of more of an educational thing and sharing information, both with the, well, first with the book and then um, subsequently, you know, with all these presentations that I've been doing. You've moved into this role of an educator and an advocate. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, you know, it really, that, of course, I never anticipated any of that in the beginning. 
I just wanted to build a little still <laughs> and make a little bit of liquor because I thought it would be fun. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I never anticipated that, you know, I had no idea what kind of can of worms I was opening by just filing that application packet. And so it's, um, it's been quite an interesting ride the last few years, uh, for sure. And I'm still learning, you know, a lot about it. And it's wonderful to go around to different states and talk to people and get their input and their questions, you know, because there is, I kind of feel like the hobby, dis- I'm not quite sure whether the hobby distilling, uh, whether the interest in that is, is maybe waning a little bit at this point. I still get quite large audiences at these presentations. Um, but, and, you know, people ask a lot of great questions. There's still plenty of interest in it. And as you probably know, there's plenty of companies who are, are marketing, you know, hobby size stills to people. And so they're doing that a little more openly, although, you know, at least in this country, people who sell those stills have to report those sales to the federal government. And so I've told people, sure, you can buy a still, but you can expect a letter or a phone call or probably both at some point saying, so we see you bought a still. Did you know you need a permit to run that? <laughs> and so there are people kind of looking over your shoulder with that. And I always talk about that at these presentations because that's just another way of underscoring the point that the laws are unfair and need to be changed. You know, that they're ready to kind of come down on you if you have a little still, but nobody's kind of looking at the law and saying, oh, you know, guess what? We need to change this. And that's kind of, I was completely blown away when the Liquor Control Board told me that I was the first person in Washington to apply for this license who didn't want to do it commercially. I really had no clue at all. And they just said, we don't know what to do with you. (laughs) And of course, at this point, I understand why, because like I said, there's no provision in the law. And as far as I know, the only exception to that is Missouri. Missouri's state law you know, says that Missouri's always had some of the most lenient liquor laws in the country, but Missouri state law says that if there's one person over age 21 in your household, you can make up to 100 gallons total of any kind of liquor, including distilled liquor, per year without a permit. And somebody, when I was doing a presentation on this subject in Kansas several years ago, somebody from Missouri came up and told me about this, and I had I didn't know it at the time. It was And luckily, that was before my book was published. And so I actually put a sidebar in the book about it. But part of the point of that is that even, you know, before everybody pulls up and moves to Missouri to make booze, technically, they still have to have a federal permit in order to do that legally. And most people just don't know that. And, you know, I can't blame them for that. It's not real common knowledge. But in general, as far as I know, Missouri is the only exception on a state level. I think every other state in the country, you have to have a state license to do this. So that's what I have been working on, sometimes more actively than others, because I've been, you know, working on other books and like I said, spending more time traveling around speaking about this and some other subjects as well. So yeah, that's that's kind of the sum of all the, the legal part of it on my end. It's just it's it's kind of crazy that this is what's required for something that seems kind of so simple and was done for hundreds and hundreds of years. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. And, you know, I wrote about the history of this in the early part of the book because I was really fairly shocked at some of the things that I learned. And I felt it was really important to give some context to my argument that the law ought to be changed. And part of that, which, you know, is kind of the way it ties in with permaculture, too, is, I mean, distilling was a really important homestead skill, which, by the way, was most often the responsibility of the woman of the house. 
But the reason why it was important was because, you know, especially in the late, in the 1700s and in the early 1800s, before we got heavily into the Industrial Revolution, the settlers and the, the homesteaders and the pioneers, you know, would basically either grow or hunt or barter, you know, for just about everything that they needed. But they had to have a source of cash to pay their property taxes and keep their land. And quite often, these were people who were immigrants from, well, a little later in the 18, in the 1840s during the Irish potato famine. There were an awful lot of people immigrating to Canada and the U.S. from Ireland. And it was the Scots were more, there was a heavy immigration of Scots in the late 1700s. And these people had, they had their little stills with them and they had their distilling skills. And quite often they were also, another factor was they were quite often very suspicious of the local water supply. And so they would make whiskey or rum or in New England, it was often hard cider or other alcoholic drinks and drink those instead of plain water. And they were probably right. It was probably safer in some ways, at least when you got to the real rural areas. The point is that it was a, actually a really important part of the local economy. So after Prohibition was repealed in 1933 and then in the late 30s into the 40s was the whole period where the government agents, the revenuers, were going around busting up illegal stills. It was just really ironic and very sad because, first of all, this was at huge taxpayer expense. It worked out to about the cost of about $10,000 for every single still that was busted up. And Gene Logsdon, who you probably know who Gene Logsdon was. He died about two years ago, but he wrote the foreword for my book. And he talked about this in his book about liquor called Good Spirits. He said that the whole Appalachia area was actually once a very prosperous area, but the turning point was when the revenuers came in there and busted up these stills that were the main means of livelihood, really, for a lot of these people, or at least for making enough money to pay their property taxes. And the really sad and ironic part of all that, too, is that, of course, ever since then, the whole Appalachia area has been a welfare state, which has been a huge drain on the national economy as well. And this was all in the name of just busting up what they thought were illegal stills. And I think that's a really very sad page in the history of the, of the United States myself. You know, the other big thing that I discovered in the, as far as researching history of it was, and again, going back to the Revolutionary War, as far as I could find out, Pretty much every time a new liquor tax has been imposed or an existing one raised since the late 1700s, it's been to pay for a war. And that was a real eye-opener for me as well. Um, we certainly didn't learn anything about this in history class in high school that I remember. And so all of this has just kind of given context to and kind of gave me even more motivation to continue with what I've been trying to do as far as bringing the legal issues out into the open and to be talked about openly so that, you know, something can, can be changed about it. Well, and it's interesting to me because being from Pennsylvania, the Whiskey Rebellion is something that's well talked about. And that was, from my own reading, that was the first tax on a domestic product in the newly formed United States and was to raise money to pay back the debts from the Revolutionary War. Right, exactly. I didn't know that the part about it being the first tax like that, uh, but I did know that it was it was imposed to pay back the and it was something like a two billion dollar debt, and that was in 1790s dollars. I don't know what that translates to now, but it was a lot of money. And the reason why the whole whiskey rebellion happened, in a nutshell, anyway, was because Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury to Washington, he insisted that the tax be paid in cash. 
and nobody had any cash to pay it. And so that's what really kind of set that whole thing off. And eventually Washington sent in just a ridiculous number of army troops to put down that rebellion. And it was just, it was really sad and just unnecessarily violent. And at that point, a lot of those people in Pennsylvania started moving west. And some of them ended up in Kentucky and discovered the joys of growing corn. And and that's when bourbon started coming into the picture. And but yeah, the whole whiskey rebellion thing was pretty, pretty sad, I thought, and just another kind of unnecessary thing because what part of the irony of that for me, and also I'll use the word hypocrisy again, was that George Washington was a whiskey distiller himself. He was openly giving out large quantities of whiskey to people he, that he was basically trying to bribe votes from before he got elected. And he also, when he, he made some laws about taxing liquor, he made sure that the taxes were imposed on people who were making just a little more liquor than he was. <laughs> so he was made sure he was exempt from his own liquor taxes. And so I learned quite a bit about this, and a lot of it was pretty interesting. Some of it was pretty sad. But, you know, like I said, it's all kind of given context to my argument for changing the laws. And so ends the first conversation on distilling with Victoria Redhead Miller. We recorded nearly two hours of audio together in a single session, so end there with some of her thoughts on what led her to this interest in the legal side of home distilling. The other half, out in a few weeks, begins with Victoria walking us through an overview of the distilling process before we dive in deep. You can find out more about her, craft distilling, and her other books at victoriaredheadmiller.com or through her publisher, New Society Publishers, at newsociety.org. Of course, you'll find links to those, as well as House Bill 2903, the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act of 2015, in the resource section of the show notes. When I started the conversation with Victoria, I didn't know that we were going to talk this much about the legal side of distilling, but shouldn't have been surprised that we would wind up here, given how often homesteaders, permaculture practitioners, farmers, and others trying to do the right thing for earth and community find ourselves under a great deal of scrutiny and running afoul of a variety of laws and ordinances because we ask questions about how to do something. Whether we want to know about keeping livestock at home, if creating an intentional meadow will run afoul of weed ordinances, or we want to ensure that the product we're producing will not land us in jail. That's why, in addition to Victoria's description here about getting into the game and working on this particular issue of home distilling that means so much to her, this year has included conversations like those with Michael Judd, about green and natural burials, Avialis on aquaponics systems and creating the laws that we need, and Philip Ackerman Leist about the pesticide issues in malts, which each show different ways people and communities come together to make a difference. In my ideal world, we wouldn't have to go through these processes and could instead make local decisions that consider the broader implications for our bioregion while taking care of one another through governance without government. But that's not the case right now. So because of my bias towards reform, there's a need for us to work within the system to create change. For me, that means each of us getting out of the stands and into the game about something we care about. So in addition to my permaculture work, one of my goals is to see the end of the war on drugs in America during my lifetime, because this failed policy disproportionately impacts people of color, while restricting access to viable treatments for pain, mental health, and the impacts of aging, and is a horrible drain on the economics of the country and the world because of the destructive nature of zero-tolerance policies, while also restricting the use of products like industrial hemp. As a result, I spend a lot of time sending emails, making follow-up phone calls, and 
mailing letters to my legislators at all levels to create work on and support policies that remove many of the prohibitions that destroy lives, families, and communities. I share that with you so that I might ask, what would it take to get you in the game? What issues matter enough that you would start making some phone calls and writing letters to engage in the political process as a private citizen with a passion for ecological, people-focused, and individual progress? I'd love to hear from you and also do anything that I can to support your efforts. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next regular interview is a conversation with the Mud Girls, a women-owned and operated natural building collective in British Columbia, Canada, and the authors responsible for the upcoming Mud Girls Manifesto. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by getting involved and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.